So we find ourselves today continuing on our journey through Philippians, and specifically in Philippians chapter 2. And as we've discussed over the past several weeks, Philippians is a letter that really gives us a picture of what it looks like to both be a mature follower of Christ and what it looks like to be a functional church of Christ. It's a letter between friends, Paul and his friends in Philippi, that talks about how do we transcend all of the things that can hold us back. And in chapter 1, Paul talks about how do we transcend our past? How do we transcend all of our failures? How do we transcend the current circumstances that we find ourselves living in? And Paul wrote this as he found himself living in the very real circumstance of being in jail. So he knew something about what it meant to overcome hard circumstances. And he writes to his friends and he says, guys, if you want to overcome, if you want to transcend, this is what it looks like. This is how it works. And as he got to the end of chapter one, he starts talking to them about how do you transcend all of the issues in your communities? How do you actually become a witness for Christ in your communities? And then as he pivoted to chapter two last week, What we saw is he said, if you're going to do that, then you first need to look inside. You've got to look inside at your heart. If you're going to transcend all of our circumstances, our past, and everything that may hold us back externally, then there's something we need to deal with internally, and it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what is the correct Christian posture in virtue That should be the defining characteristic of our lives. And so just so we can pick up from where we left off last week, I want to reread for us the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. And Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And this really sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about this week. He urges them in these opening verses to say, If you're going to have unity, if you're going to have unity as you engage your culture, if you're going to have unity as you engage with one another, then you must have humility. Because without humility, it is impossible to ever have unity. To be successful, we have to be unified. And to be unified, we have to be humble. But what's the basis for our unity? Is it just work hard and stay humble. It's a big thing going around in our culture today. Just stay humble. We use it as this sort of motivation tactic to keep us going. Just keep trying harder. Keep working. And you'll get there. Stay humble. And we wear it as almost a badge of honor. But that's not biblical humility. That's a cultural perversion of what it means to be humble. Because that type of humility is really not humility at all. It's pride. It's the opposite of humility. 
It's a simple test for us. If we want to actually know if we're being humble, then we're probably not advertising it. Because as soon as we start to advertise our humility to others, we're really not being humble at all. Christian humility is not really about thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking rightly of ourselves. It's not about thinking less of ourselves, but it is about thinking less often about ourselves and thinking more often about the others who are around us. And what's the foundation of this Christian humility? There's lots of ways to get humility wrong. We've all gotten humility wrong. What's the foundation of it? Are there examples that we can follow if we're going to actually get humility right? Is there a model or a method of humility that we can follow that would actually lead us to unity, a unity of purpose as we engage our community in a unity of fellowship as we engage with each other? Well, there is. You didn't really expect me to say no, did you? You might have hoped I would say no, because then we could leave and enjoy the beautiful day, but you didn't expect me to say no. And that's exactly what Paul begins to pivot to as he moves on in Philippians 2 to verses 5 to 11, is the example of humility. And what we find in verses 5 to 11 is actually the greatest example of humility that can be found in the entire history of the world. The greatest example of self-forgetful regard in order to put the interest of others first. It's the supreme example of sacrificial love. It's the example of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is actually one of the greatest passages in the Bible on both the person and the work of Christ, about his attitude and his example. And you can get really theologically nerdy as you dive into Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And to put theological words around it, you would talk about the self-emptying and the humility and the exaltation of Christ. There's been more theological work done in this passage than perhaps any other passage in the Bible. People write PhD theses on this passage. We could write an entire sermon series on this passage. But it's always important to put a passage into context. And Paul's point in this passage is not actually to write a deep theological treaty. Although there's deep theological truth in this passage, his purpose in the passage is to urge the Philippians forward in a spirit of unity, a spirit of unity that will be vital for them to embody if they're going to convey the message of Jesus Christ in their community and to the surrounding environment. And so let's pick up in Philippians 2, 5, where Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's a repeat of the exhortation that he had given them in verses 1 to 4 with the introduction of the example of how to do it. It's an example combined with a command, looking backwards and says, this is the proper attitude that you have to have, but looking forward and saying, and this is the mindset, this is how you do it. He says, have the same mindset 
as Christ. Have the, it's an active word. It says, think of yourself the same way that Christ thought of his self. Your attitude about yourself should be the same thing as Christ's attitude about himself. The same. And just like we began to look at last week, there's these little words in the Bible that can have big meanings. We spend a lot of time talking about the big words, but sometimes it's actually the littlest words that are the most profound and the most compelling for us if we're going to move forward. Last week, we talked a lot about what does any mean and what does none mean. And here we find another little word, same. It says, have the same attitude as Christ. Not just a little like Christ. Not just sort of like Christ. Not just mostly like Christ. Not just like Christ towards the people you like. Not the same as Christ just when we feel like, but have the same mindset of Christ, have the identical mindset of Christ in every situation that you find yourselves in. Don't just look like Christ, act like Christ. I've got twin nephews, and they just turned 10 recently, and I hate to admit as the bad uncle I am, but they're 10 years old, and I literally still can't tell them apart. I can't. Every time I see them, I've got to be like, okay, what's your name? And they'll tell me, and I've got to memorize what shirt they're wearing. So I can, luckily, my brother does not dress them the same. That would be the death of me. But once you hang around them long enough, while they literally look identical, they're not the same person. And when you're around them long enough, you start to see the personality differences come out. And then you can actually know who they are because they're not the same. They don't have the same mindset. What we see is this mindset that Paul's talking about is not an external set of rules. It's not dressing ourselves up like Christ, but it's actually being Christ, have the same mindset. And so we should pause for a second and kind of just regroup because we really struggle to do this. But it's not so hard to understand, is it? Which part of it's hard? Really none of it because it's not that complicated. It says just do what Christ does, guys. But if it's not so complicated, why do we have such a hard time doing it? Why do we balk at this idea and resist it and avoid it? He says, your attitude should be the same as Christ. And what was it that his attitude was? As we'll see, the verse goes on to say that he humbled himself. It was an attitude of complete humility. In verses 6 and 7 and 8, we see the attitude and the actions of Christ. And then in verses 9 to 11, what we're going to see is the response of God to the attitude and the actions of Christ. And it's hard to necessarily see this in our modern translations, but these six verses are actually a hymn of the early church. It's a hymn broken up into two stanzas. And what we learn from this hymn is a lot, actually, about the worship in the early church. 
And we learn that their worship was steeped in theology. Their worship was focused on the person and the work of Christ. And their worship was action-oriented. It wasn't about filling their heads with knowledge so they could win trivia contests and debates with their friends. It was action-oriented to move them to psychological and physiological applications. It's the whole negative-positive thing that's revealed. Don't do this, guys, but do this. And they wrapped it all up into this great hymn of worship about Christ. The goal of it was doxological, to move them into action. To appreciate and understand who Christ was so that they could imitate him. And that's why since the earliest days of worship in the temple, music has been part of worship. Because the way God has designed us, music has powerful controls over us. Music can change our moods. It can change our rhythms. It can change our cadences. I go running with a friend, and he likes to listen to music sometimes when he runs. And it's always funny, when we're running, you can literally tell when the song he listens to slows up or speeds down, because without even thinking about it, his pace will speed up, or it will slow down. And he has a hard time staying consistent, because his body is just reacting to the pace of the music. And we react the same way. That's why we bring music into our worship, because music has a profound ability to change us. And so Paul gives them this hymn about Christ with the goal of it changing what they understood and what they did. And the first stanza of the hymn is verses 6 to 8. Where he says, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So let's play a little game with these three verses, uh, kind of game of compare and contrast. And the verses begin, who being in the very nature God. So Christ is God. We have to recognize where he begins his journey. And the contrast is us. We are not God. If we want to understand the extent of Christ's humility, it's most apparent when we recognize the length he humbled himself from. The fact that his attitude and his actions would cause him to leave his eternal pre-existing glory to do what? To become a man and to die. This being in the very nature of God is an important word because he was already God before he came into the world. He was always God. He will always be God. There is never a time he wasn't God, never a time he will not be God. This is what John says in the prologue to his gospel. 
It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything that was created was created through Him. But being in the very nature God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, He didn't consider His equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He is God, but doesn't use his equality with God as something for his own advantage. We are not God, but we constantly seek to make ourselves into God's. Christ did not grasp after it, but that's exactly what we do. We grasp after it. Even though he had every right, he had a greater priority for his life than his uninterrupted glory. And I'm not sure we have any greater priority of lives than our uninterrupted glory. What makes us most obnoxious to people? What causes confusion and division in churches and workplaces and homes? It's when we focus on our own uninterrupted glory, when we say, me first, do it my way. Right? We've all met those people. We've all been those people. Right? Enough about me. Let's talk more about me. But Christ didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. We will never have harmony. We will never reach our community until we're willing to set aside our own glory. Christ didn't cling to his prerogatives as God. He deliberately and voluntarily set it all aside for a different priority. He set it aside for the priority of redemption. He set it aside for us. He set aside all of his glory. And we tend to hold on to our glory and cling to our glory at any cost. He refused to grasp what was rightfully his when man is constantly trying to grasp what does not belong to him. And he would not use it for his own advantage, but we are constantly looking for advantages for ourselves. He takes on the very nature of a servant. And we just constantly look for people to serve us. He made himself into human likeness, where we are constantly remaking ourselves into God's likeness. He took on the very nature of a servant. He became man. And what we have to grapple with in that is we try and understand what does that actually mean is that God actually made us to serve. That was God's design. God designed us to serve, to serve him, to serve creation, to serve one another. That was the design in the garden. 
And man got it all wrong by trying to make himself into God. And so Christ comes to actually show us what it means to be man. Being made nothing. As he added his humanity to his deity, he didn't take away his deity. What he did was elevate humanity to what it was supposed to be. He went from the exercise of lordship to the obedience of a servant. By adding humanity to his deity, he elevated humanity back to its original design. We constantly are trying to get ahead for ourselves. But what was the model that Christ gave us? What was his mindset that we're supposed to have? His entire time on earth, he was being humiliated and debased. From the time he was born, the contrast is stark. He goes from the glories of heaven to literal abject poverty. You don't get poorer than Mary and Joseph were poor. He gets born into a broken family. To live his life on the run is a refugee, being chased by the government. He gave it all up for us. And yet we constantly are looking for more. How do we feel when we have to give things up? What's our attitude when we're asked to sacrifice? Do we do it the way Christ did it? Or do we cling and get mad and get upset? He left his position and rank and privilege so that he could give us position and rank and privilege. Now, the best way I like to think about this entire concept is flying. I used to spend a lot of time in airports and a lot of time flying, and I know some of you guys do as well. And if you've ever been at the airport, you've probably had this thought, and maybe you've tried. There's always that first-class waiting list. Everyone wants to get upgraded to first class. And can you imagine? So you go and you go to the airport and you're about to board the plane and they say to you, hey, I've got a ticket for you for first class. And you're thrilled. And then you look next to you and your wife is traveling with you. They don't have a ticket for her. What do you do? Could you imagine actually walking onto the plane and walking back to the seat with your wife and coach, walking through first class and walking back to that seat and coach and just saying to the person in the middle seat sitting next to your wife, hey, could I have your seat? I'll give you mine. That's what Christ did. He still had all the rights and the privileges of flying first class. He still had all the status, but he willingly gave it up for us who were stuck in the middle seats back in coach. 
And to human eyes, this makes no sense. I say, why in the world would you do that? Right, I've been offered lots of first-class tickets in my life. I'll tell you, I never gave up one of them, even when I was traveling with other people. Never my wife. I never had the opportunity. <laughs> right? We always seek more. We seek the status. Right? That's what Solomon says when he writes, vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. And Isaiah, when he writes, why do you keep eating bread? That will never satisfy. We constantly are chasing and chasing for more and more. And when we chase, we always find it wanting and empty. And we find it wanting and empty because it's not the pattern that Christ has set for us. Christ moves from the form of God to the form of a servant. It's an outward appearance. It's an outward set of actions that declares an inward truth. Right? This is what James says. In James chapter 2, and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Right? Our faith, our form is evidenced by what we do. What is inside comes out, outside. For the eternal God to come and walk the streets of Judea and Jerusalem. To be spat on by humanity. He chose to take on obedience as his defining characteristic. But that's not all. It's like a terrible infomercial. If all of that wasn't enough, it goes on, it says he humbled himself how? By becoming obedient to death. But not just any death. Death on a cross. A death so terrible that the Roman government wouldn't even allow its own citizens to be killed that way. A death so terrible that it was only used for the worst of the worst criminals. It was used as a way to keep the territories that Rome had conquered under control. And the Jewish culture viewed the cross as a curse on humanity. He didn't just humble himself to become a man. He didn't just humble himself to die. He humbled himself to death on a cross. They pierced the hands of our creator to a tree that he spoke into existence. This is the dramatic distance that Christ was willing to travel in his humility. From the form of God to death on a cross. This is the servant mindset that Paul says, have the same mindset. This is it. Not hard to understand. But not so easy to do, is it? Obedience unto death. He took on our punishment. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. He says the path to exaltation is through humility, but what paths do we take to exaltation? 
What paths do we take at work towards our own exaltation, our self-promotion, our self-grandizing? What paths do we take at school? What paths do we take in our communities and in our homes? We take every option to get ourselves ahead. We try and scheme to get ourselves on the first-class list to get the upgrade, whether we deserve it or not. But Paul says the model is to give all that up. And that's what brings us to the second stanza of our hymn, verses 2 to 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What you see here is the Father and the Son in this relationship of mutual honor and mutual selflessness. He took on a role after his crucifixion and resurrection that he didn't have before, which is really interesting. He was always God. He always will be God. But through the process of becoming human, through the process of his humility and his sacrifice, it equipped him to take on a new role that he could not have had before. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equally God, but they have different roles. Just like we are all part of the body, equal as parts of the body, but different roles that God has called us to play. No one better than the other, but we each must play our role. And it took the humility of Christ to prepare him for a new role. God gives him a piece, the Father gives him a piece of a role that he had held as the one who walked with man. Right in the garden, it was the father who walked with Adam. But now, after the humility of Christ, it is Christ who has the role in the honor of being the one who walks alongside man. And God is willing to give it up to him. He says, every knee and every tongue says, in the end, all contradiction will cease and all denial will end. Some will accept the lordship and others will be forced to accept it. Angels and demons will both accept, acknowledge. The living and the dead will both acknowledge. The saved and the lost will both acknowledge Jesus is Lord. It's the end of the hymn, and it's the earliest creed of the young Christian church. Jesus is Lord. The name to be bowed to is the same name he was humiliated with. It wasn't a new name that God gave him. It was a continuation of his identity. And when we're saved, God does the same thing with us. He doesn't erase our past He forgives our past, and then as we will allow him, he will use our past, he will use our experiences, he will use everything that the gospel can transcend in our lives for his purposes and for his glory. What he does at the end of this is he brings the future into view by describing this culminating point in history. And in this six verse, these six verses, this great hymn of the early church. Paul takes us from 
the beginning of time all the way through the end of time. He shows us the entire picture in these six verses, and it all centers around Christ, and Christ is the model we are supposed to follow. And if we are willing to take Philippians 2, 1 to 11 seriously, if we were really willing to think of others more highly than ourselves, if we were really willing to have the same mindset as Christ, then I would suggest it would fix every relational issue we have in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our schools, in our communities, if we would take on the mindset of Christ, if we would take on the attitude of Christ. It's not stay humble, because stay humble is all about what can we do for ourselves. And we can't do this for ourselves. We can only do this as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us as we yield our will to the will of God. We don't do it because we feel like it. We don't do it with just those we like. We do it because we must. We do it because he did it. We do it because that is the example our Savior set for us. He said, if you have any encouragement, if you have any comfort, if you have any common sharing, when we really grapple with what Christ did for us, when we really grapple with the journey he took from heaven to the cross, how can we not have encouragement and comfort and sharing because of that? We tend to look at these things and play comparison games. Well, they weren't nice to me, so I don't need to be nice to them. They didn't humble themselves, so why should I have to humble myself? Or I'm at least a little more humble than he is, so I must be okay. It's easy to look at these verses and sit in judgment. It's easy to look around ourselves and say, well, yeah, of course, you're right. If they would just do this, everything would be perfect. But this isn't about they. This is about me. This is about each of us. Where in your life are your relationships fractured? What are the things that you are just struggling to to forgive? Where are the things where you sit back and say, well, if they had just done this, then I, I could have. Or I did it because they made me so mad. I, I just, I couldn't help myself. That's not the model. Perhaps they shouldn't have done what they did. Perhaps what they did really did make you mad and maybe you are super justified for that. But he says, in everything, have the same mindset as Christ. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you then that when we have done so much to serve ourselves that your son willingly gave up heaven to serve us. I pray that we would yield to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That we would yield our self-centeredness to your selflessness. That you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to follow the model of Christ. To humble ourselves. And that through our humility you would bring restoration. Wherever there are fractures in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.